Well, Merriam-Webster defines arrogance this way. Arrogance is an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. Synonyms include words like haughtiness, uh, pretentiousness, and then my favorite is pomposity. It's kind of fun to say. And according to psychologists at the University of Missouri, there are actually three types of arrogance. Uh, The first is what they call individual arrogance, which is an inflated opinion about one's own abilities, traits, and achievements that do not fit reality. It implies magnifying our results and exaggerating our competencies, which leads to a distorted and false sense of self. The second they call comparative arrogance. Comparative arrogance is an inflated classification of one's own abilities, traits, or Achievements compared to those of other people. This type of arrogance is not limited to exaggerating the self-image, but also implies a skewed view of others around us. And then the third type, antagonistic arrogance. You see this is building one upon the other. And they say that antagonistic arrogance is the culmination of arrogance, as it implies that denigration of others based upon an assumption of superiority. The arrogant person not only believes himself to be superior, but also thinks that others are inferior, and then acts as such. They say they often ignore, humiliate, or harm those that are inferior to them. And in our passage tonight, James deals with all three, hits them head on, and he does so by sticking to the themes of wisdom, or or the tongue, wisdom, and money. And he's emphasizing, as he has been, the importance of being doers of the Word and not just hearers only. And all all of those themes were introduced to us in James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. And here in chapters uh, 4 and 5, the end of 4 and the beginning of 5, he uses three examples or illustrations. Um, And those pictures that serve as illustrations of ignorance involve people, plans, and prosperity. And in particular, he shows us how uh, arrogance mistreats people, how, arrogant, how, how we're arrogant in, in the making of our plans, and then how we're arrogant in our misuse of property. And those three pictures he uses to exhort us in three ways. One involving self-promotion, the second involving self-reliance, and the third in self-indulgence. And you'll find the outline in the normal spot on the back of our bulletin, um, three points, the danger of self-promotion, the danger of self-reliance, and the danger of self-indulgence. Children, you're going to find, you will find your words in the right place tonight uh, there in the bulletin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, 
as I pray every week, we would ask that you would grant power to the preaching of your word, and that you would grant us all in this place the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. We ask that you would awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us, and then please... Refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through the gospel. I am weak and needed to this task to which you've called me. And in order to do something good for you and to be a channel of your grace, I am in need of your support, strength, and the filling of your spirit. My desire is that I would... And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let's look first... And begin with the danger of self-promotion in verse 11. Uh, James, very matter-of-factly, as we've grown accustomed just in these few short weeks, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. It's a straightforward imperative. It includes a wide variety of things from questioning legitimate authority uh, to uh, bringing wrong accusations against someone else. It includes slander, it includes belittling, it includes disparaging, it includes putting down, it includes running others down. And we have to keep in mind as we hear those things that many times what is said in those situations may in fact or could actually be true, but the fact that it's true doesn't make it right to say. And he doesn't just give the command, he also gives the rationale for the command. Look at verse 11, he says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But but who are you to judge your neighbor? First, he says, when we speak evil against another person, we're promoting ourselves as we judge others or as we judge them. And let's put this in proper perspective. Let's put it in a scriptural context. In the words of Douglas Moo, he says, James is not prohibiting the the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise, nor is he forbidding the right of the community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be in flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith or to determine right and wrong among its members. What he's rebuking, he says, is jealous, censorious, another fun word to say, or critical speech by which we condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God. And when we do that, we're treating, well, we're not treating our brother and sister as we should. We're treating them like someone who's inferior, and we are, in fact, superior. We're self-righteously placing ourselves in a one-up position rather than a one-down position. We're putting ourselves in a position to denounce and condemn rather than encourage, bless, and praise. 
He says when we speak evil against another, we promote ourselves as we judge the law. That means we not only break the royal law, and I'm using this language from earlier in James, so if you're just joining us, please forgive me for that, but he says that we not only break the royal law of liberty that is summarized in love your neighbor as yourself, but we also believe we ourselves are above the law, and really that we are a law unto ourselves. We aren't doers of the word when we do this. We're, we're not obeying. We're actually saying that we believe that the law is arbitrary. We're saying that it's mistaken, and that we know better, and that we have better opinions, and we have better things to say, and we have a better way to live, and we end up sitting in judgment over it rather than sitting in judgment under it. And then he says, thirdly, when we speak evil against another, we're promoting ourselves as we judge God. It's gone from bad to worse. He says, we question when, when, we, when we speak in this way and when we're speaking evil against one another, what we're doing is questioning His authority. We're deeming Him to be unqualified as a lawgiver and a judge who is unfit to rule and reign and cannot be impartial and is therefore unable to save and destroys without prejudice. So when we speak, when we speak evil against one another, we self-promote, and then in the process, we violate humility, we violate love, we violate submission, and from last week, we violate trust. And we set ourselves up as enemies of God. And James says, but who are you? I think we need to hear it with that tone. But who are you? What right... Do you have, what right do we have to assume this position of judge over anyone? Particularly God and His law. On what authority do we declare ourselves to be sovereign? Because there's only one lawgiver, James says. There's only one just judge. There's only one qualified lawgiver. There's only one who is gracious, merciful, holy, righteous, and just enough to save and destroy. He alone has the character to rule and to reign, and His law, which is born out of His character, was not given to you and to me or to us to use unfairly and inequitably and unjustly, and arbitrarily, and self-righteously. The law was given to us to reveal our sin. The law was given to us to expose our need and to point 
to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of sinners, and to provide the means by which we might do and can do His will and please Him. And brothers and sisters, the reality is, in the words of Alec Motier, if we really If we're really low before God, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. He goes on to say, humility leaves no room for talking down, but only for coming down to where the needy is. Identifying with the need and abandoning self-interest as to meet it. If we do know something to someone's discredit, he says, and be it never so true, Our task is not to publicize it, nor even privately to berate them with it, but to go where they are and lift them up. Well, in verses 13 to 17, James moves from this danger of self-promotion to a danger of self-reliance. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. He says, listen, your arrogant self-reliance is abundantly obvious. For example, he says, every day you make travel plans at work, and you make them as if your business is going to be around and you're going to work for this company for the rest of your life. You, you make plans as if, or really forever, not just the rest of your life, forever. He says, you make plans as if the economy is going to continue to grow and to flourish, and you make them as if your success is up to you, solely up to you, and your ability to plan and present and implement your strategy for products, profit, and growth. And just so we're fair, let's expand this illustration or his illustration to include and apply this to more than just our vendors and suppliers and analysts in the room. Every day we all make plans. We all make plans of various kinds. Plans. We make financial plans. We make plans for the day. We make plans for the week. We make plans for the summer. We make plans for holidays. We make five-year plans, ten-year plans, and retirement plans. Our days are filled with making plans, and we make those plans as if we're masters of our own destinies. We make those plans as if we control what happens from one day to the next. We make plans as if we're guaranteed our health and our wealth and our time and our opportunities that we need to make those plans come to fruition. And James says, stop it. Stop arrogantly boasting in yourselves because the reality is you have no idea what tomorrow holds. 
We're clueless as far as what the next day will bring. We don't even know if there will be a tomorrow. We don't know if there's going to be another hour. We're taking for granted the living of another day. We're taking for granted that we're all going to live to an average age, 81 for women, 77 for men. We just think it's a given. But he says, in light of eternity, your days are like a mist. I was thinking this passage this morning as I was making my coffee, watching the steam come up from the coffee and just disappear before it got to the bottom of the cabinet. Life is fleeting. It's going to be over before we know it. Our life is as brief as the dash between the birth year and death year on our tombstones. We also take it for granted that we're always going to have our families. We're always going to have our homes and our jobs and our health and our freedom. James says, you're assuming your ability and your planning and your success are not just possible but guaranteed. And then he says, to make matters worse, you're not only self-reliant, you're arrogantly boasting in your self-reliance. You think it's a badge of honor. And he says, all such boasting is evil. And it's evil because what we're doing is self-exalting rather than, rather than humbling ourselves before the Lord. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the alternative is to simply change jobs or to cease making plans or to stop being concerned about the future. He doesn't say any of those things. He simply says, begin acknowledging the Lord in those things. He says, stop saying you're going to live and do this or that. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or that. In other words, stop being self-reliant. Stop being presumptuous. Stop being arrogant. Stop making your plans as if you're self-sufficient and independent. And make your plans acknowledging that God holds your life and everything in it. Stop acting as if you must be in control of your life because for some reason you think God is unable to provide or, or is He's at a loss at, as to what you need or even worse, you, He says, He's withholding from you that which you need. He says, acknowledge and submit yourselves to the Lord and His will. Rest in Him. Right? He has created you. He has created me. He's, he knows and has numbered the hairs on our head. He's recreated us by His Spirit. He has implanted the living Word within our hearts. He's numbered our days. He knows every one of them and all the... And, and, he knows not only our days, but what's involved in our days and what He has planned for them. He's foreordained whatever comes to pass. So brothers and sisters, let me, let me ask you, 
What are you anxious about? What do you fear? Let me encourage you to remember your limitations. Right? We are finite creatures. And we need to release the reins of our life. Listen to these words from Heidelberg Catechism, question 27 and 28. The Almighty, everywhere present power of God, upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs, herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Therefore, we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good conscience in our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. I'm not sure who said it first, heard it as well, where I read it first or heard it first, but someone else said it and came up with it, and you've probably heard it as well. We may not know what tomorrow holds but we know who holds tomorrow. And it was His will to set His love upon us and raise us from the dead and salvage us and restore us, we who were marred beyond usefulness. He chose to save us. It was His will to send Christ to the cross for our sins to redeem us. With that in mind, that should be in the forefront of our minds, should we not rest in His will for our future even though it remains unknown to us? And even if we unconditionally speak of our futures, and the words, if the Lord wills or Lord willing, if those words don't become a regular part of our vocabulary or conversation, should we not be known as those who, in the words of John Calvin, have it as a fixed principle in our minds that we can do nothing without the permission of God? The answer to both questions is a resounding yes. And it's a resounding yes because as James says in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Well, that brings us to verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5. And our last danger, which is the danger of self-indulgence. But before we go, or before I read those verses, I, I want to say this. There's agreement among all commentators that... Um, James is speaking of wealthy landowners in these first six verses, but there's disagreement as far as who these wealthy landowners are. There's disagreement. Some believe that they are professing believers in the church. Others believe that they are non-Christians outside of the church. And it, you know, it would make more sense if they were in the church than it would outside the church, but you know, be kind of prophetic-like for James to be speaking to those outside of the church and for those inside of the church to hear it. 
And as Calvin points out, it would be profitable for them for a couple of reasons. One, they would hear of the miserable end of the rich and not envy their fortune. And then secondly, he says that God would be, they would hear that God would be their avenger, right? The avenger of the wrongs that they had suffered, and with a calm and resigned mind, they would then bear them, okay? So it could go either way, and I wrestled with this, Um, good arguments on both sides, and And truthfully, I landed at the point where I'm not sure that it matters which group it is because the truth is still when I found out that doctrine applicable to us either way, and then I felt really good uh, when I found out that Dr. Lloyd-Jones agrees, or actually that I agree with Dr. Lloyd-Jones. So I feel pretty good at this point. So with that said, let's, let's read these verses together, okay? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, it couldn't be any more matter-of-factly and straight to the point. Judgment was coming upon the wealthy, not for their wealth. It's not a sin to be wealthy. But judgment was coming due to their attitudes about their wealth and how they were using their wealth, or actually how they were misusing it. And James said that that in itself ought to terrify them, should be very afraid. They needed to hear that their wealth was not only not going to save them, but it was also going to condemn them. It was going to be used as evidence against them on the day of judgment. And the natural question that arises, what were they doing that was so bad to to receive this kind of rebuke from James? And the answer is, they were hoarding it for their own self-indulgence. Right? They're hiding it. They were laying it up. They were putting it under lock and key. And rather than helping those who were in need, rather than taking care of the poor among them, they were oppressing them by refusing to give them what they needed and in some cases deserved. You see, they weren't just withholding from the poor in general. They were withholding from those who worked for them. They were exploiting and defrauding their own employees, their own employees who needed to be paid on time, and these guys are not paying them on time. And there were major consequences for these families. They needed their paychecks. They needed their daily wages when they were supposed to receive them, and they were under extreme hardship. And in the process, the, the landowners were just ignoring them and oppressing them, and therefore they were, break, they were actually breaking the law. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15 says, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. 
The rich were more concerned, the wealthy were more concerned with their own wants and their own desires, and they were more interested in providing for themselves the, the luxuries and amenities of life than they were providing for their own, the, the basic needs of the poor. They're trusting in and finding satisfaction in, in their prosperity and in their wealth and possessions, and they, were, they had grown numb to the less fortunate around them. They had grown deaf to the cries of those who were dependent upon receiving what they needed to receive on time. They're feasting. Others are starving. They're growing fat and happy, and others are growing lean and even dying because of their oppression. And James says, look, this is only temporary. And using the language that he heard his brother use, he tells them that their gold and silver is going to rust and corrode and their clothing is going to rot and moths are going to eat it. It's not going to last. It's all going to be destroyed. They are going to be burned up with it. And they should mourn and weep over what they're doing. Because they're not simply storing up treasure, right? They're storing up wrath that will be meted out by a holy and just God. They may have been deaf to the cries of the less fortunate, but the Lord was not. He heard everyone. And he was going to rectify the situation. The wealthy who were oppressing them were going to face the judgment of God, and the poor and oppressed would one day be rewarded with the riches of heaven. They were to be encouraged. Hearing, hearing whichever group he's talking to, the poor were to be encouraged because he, they heard that the Lord was going to defend them. He was going to make it right. And brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do that there's a difference between saving and hoarding. There's a difference between being prudent and being selfish. What we have is less important than our attitudes toward what we have and what we do with what we have. You may remember these words if you were with us when we were studying chapter 12 of Luke, where Jesus used these words of rust and uh, moth, uh, or moths and rust, Ken Hughes says this, we can enlarge our savings and build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and are fools in God's eyes. Or we can be rich toward God because we gave and gave and gave. What has God given us? What has He blessed us with? What are we doing with it? And that's a question that's not only to be asked individually, but corporately. How have we been blessed and what are we doing with it? 
Now again, just like last week, we feel the weight of this exhortation, do we not? We should. (laughs) We hear the law and we find ourselves in some way, if we were to take a poll, all of us in some way and in varying degrees feel like we've been right in James's sights, right in the crosshairs. And hearing this directly at us as if he's taking aim at us specifically. But here's the good news. It's the same good news that we heard last week. It's the same good news that we hear each and every week. The answer to our false sense of self, the answer to our arrogance and our presumptuousness, the the answer to our self-promotion that we all deal with in some form, the the way to deal with the self-reliance that we all deal with in some fashion, the the way to deal with our self-indulgence is through grace and humility. Grace and humility. James is clear. It was clear last week. God gives us everything that He demands for us in Christ. He's always ready to give us more grace. It never runs out. We can't out-sin the grace of God. And so no matter how arrogant we may be in any one of those categories, or two out of three, or all three, or even more, no matter how arrogant we may be, His grace is more and is always in abundant supply. And He gives that grace to those who need it. He forgives those who will humble themselves and turn from their arrogance and turn in faith to Christ, who not only took the curse of the law law upon Himself through His cross, but who fulfilled the law through His perfect obedience. And He did so on behalf of sinners like you and me. Christ never arrogantly pointed to Himself, but always sought to serve rather than to be served. He always sought to bring glory to His Father and not Himself. Christ never arrogantly arrogantly relied upon Himself, but only did what the Father told Him to say and do. Christ did not come to fulfill His own plan. He came to fulfill the plan of the Father. He came to do the Father's will and the Father's will alone. He was never arrogantly self-indulgent, but He humbled Himself by taking on flesh and became poor so that we might be rich. He was oppressed, to use language from Isaiah, He was oppressed and judged and stricken that we would be set free from our oppression to sin. Beloved, may may this word, may His word cause us to humble ourselves and to draw near to Him, as we heard last week, because when we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. We draw near to Him and receive the abundant grace that He has 
and He desires to give to us in Christ. And may we promote, rely upon, and find our pleasure in Him alone. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive this word that we have heard tonight with faith and love. May we lay it, upon, lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives, and would you bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. And it's in Christ's name we pray, and it's for his sake. Amen.